0: Hello again, this is Mark Griffin, Director of Customer Solutions here at Constructs. We're a team of software engineering experts founded by legendary author Steve McConnell. Here at Constructs, we believe every software team can be more successful at delivering higher levels of business value. For the majority of the episodes over the last couple of years, we've structured the podcast around recent engagements that our consultants have delivered. As is consistent with Inspect and Adapt, we're experimenting with recording the podcast around topics that aren't directly related to any specific engagement, but rather focus on a specific practice or a set of practices. It has worked well in the past, and so we thought we'd try another one here. Today what you'll hear is another lightly edited extract from a recording we did in September of 2022. This discussion was centered on the question of how much testing is enough really the idea of trying to understand how much formality do typical teams use with their testing practices, and really to address the question as I post it. I invited a newbie to the podcast, Constructs' senior fellow Brian Darty, and welcome back principal consultant Steve Taki to his mic for the live stream. We pick up the conversation right when I toss the grenade onto the table and suggest that some people don't even think testing is needed. Well, not that dramatic, I suppose, but you'll get the point. So here we go how much testing is enough? The general consensus is that testing still needs to be done. There are some, there are some crazy people out there that make, that make the comment that why do you need to test it all? Just getting stuff out there because there's just no way to do enough testing. So why even do it at all? We have a lot of comments about this. Steve and Brian, welcome to the, to the podcast. Um, if you guys would like to do a little bit of intro for, uh, on, from yourselves and, uh, um, You know, maybe, Steve, go ahead first, and then we can hit Brian, and then we can kind of roll into some of the topics.
1: Okay. I'm not sure how much to go into here other than I've been uh, involved professionally in software for a little bit more than 44 years. A lot of code development and uh, teaching and consulting on projects, and that's probably enough for
2: now. Yeah. I'm Brian Doherty. I've been a software developer for a mere 35 plus years. I've been around a few different places, uh, US Navy, Underwater Acoustics, Microsoft, Expedia, T-Mobile, and done a lot of training and, and things with companies, helping them, especially one of the things that was very interesting was helping them move from having dedicated test teams to doing more of the developer-driven testing. That's where I think of the m- majority of the effort is uh, nowadays, Is Either if you haven't made that transition already, then making that transition. Yeah, that's a
0: good, that's a really good point. And that's, I think, where a lot of our efforts today in working with clients tend tend to to congregate. We don't, we seem to see a lot more people who are doing the so called shift left, but we can talk about that as we get into it. There was a a report that, that Steve forwarded around internally here at Constructs, and it was basically looking at the year 2020, primarily in the United States, and it was called the cost of poor software quality. Kind of a, an eye-opener for me. This was done by, the, by an organization called the Consortium for Information and Software Quality. Their number, their top-line number was the total cost of poor software quality in the United States in 2020 was $2.08 trillion, with a T. Which is kind of a stunning number when you look at that number. It just is absolutely incredible. Steve, you joke that uh, we are a collection of highly paid amateurs. That number might line up with that comment, right?
1: <laughs> I've said before we're an industry of highly paid amateurs. Yes. Not everybody, but definitely right. there are. Right. But that kind of reminds me of there was a senator from Illinois years ago, Everett Dirksen. Who was famous for saying a few billion here, a few billion there. Pretty soon you're starting to talk real money. <laughs>
0: <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> the, you look at that total number. They further break it down in the study. It's a very interesting study, but, but they break it down. And the operational failures of that $2.08 trillion, the operational failures were $1.56 trillion. And operational failures in their, in their lexicon are really um, failures, primarily flaws in the software without beating on this too hard. I think the point here is that some testing is 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 necessary because you don't want to spring this on unsuspecting users that harshly, but how much testing is really enough to try and drive down some of those costs before they actually hit the street. And that's kind of what we really want to talk about today, right?
1: Let me jump in here. Before we go there, I mean the CISQ study does kind of bring up an interesting thing to me and that is that from the perspective of a software organization, when our code fails and we have to deal with it ourselves, then we see that impact. But the point is, is that what we don't see is the impact of the code failure on the company or in the organization that's using the code. It's easy to see what how it impacts us. But I think the CISQ study is really good from the perspective of how much does it impact people who we don't necessarily have visibility into.
0: Right. So I think that's, no, that's an important point. That's a very, very good point to bring up. Yeah. And, and it's a pretty startling commentary. And, and I would say that when we talk to international clients, we sometimes talk about that, that particular study. And I, I, do, I would suspect that is similar in international markets. I don't think U.S. Is the, is the only one that has this issue. I think this is a problem that the industry in general Let's talk about testing. Let's talk a little bit about how much testing is enough. And, and to get into that, w- would you say that software is very practical, very very structured, or is, it, is a lot of it ad hoc? What do you, what do you guys think about that?
2: Uh, well, normal testing efforts. Right, right. Usually organizations start off with a pretty ad hoc approach and they don't do a great job until those big numbers come back tech support or live fixes or having to reissue new releases of software to fix bugs that their customers are running into. I mean if you don't do the testing, you're making your customers into your testers. You will be impact, you will be impacting your customers. That's sometimes hard to measure. If you have a good software telemetry program, maybe you will get in you know some good data on that. A lot of times You just get tech support, contacts or calls or service requests. You know, if that's your first indication that you have software quality problems, you know, that's pretty late. You mentioned shift left. The big motivation for a lot of the testing effort is the cost of fixing a bug that happens later or is found later. The later it's found, it can be 50 to 200 times as much to fix it. That's a numbers that's been out there for a lot of years. And the more you can get systematic about your testing, catch things early, you know, use Agile, do testing before you call things complete, before you even call them done in the sprint, mm-hmm. those can be great things as far as helping keep your cost down and keep your quality up all the time. The other problem companies run into, I think, is the, you know, when or will you be able to ship? And that can have a long tail if you you haven't done your testing until late in the process.
0: Right. The more traditional, old school, over over the wall mentality in some respects, right?
2: Yeah. But e- even yeah. in Agile, you see that they have carrying more bugs forward than they should and don't have the testing to catch them until they're late or beta, things like that. That's right. That's really late. Steve, go ahead.
1: Yeah, I was going to say my experience is, is, that the testing is amazingly ad hoc. I mean, one of the key indicators is if your process is to include the test cases that you use to reveal yeah, you know, the, the customer finds a defect, they report it to you, as we're trying to figure out what the problem is, we have test cases that then illustrate what the underlying code problem is, that the, the testing policy is whatever test cases we use to reveal that defect become part of the test suite. In other words, the tests are entirely reactionary to what defects our customers are encountering when they're using our system there's essentially nothing proactive it's entirely reactive
2: i think you want to include those reactive cases the things that got through but you should not they shouldn't be driving your entire test process they should be trying to fill in gaps that you have from your defined test. If something got through, it's a great thing to add back to your tests, but it shouldn't be your test plan. It shouldn't be your test program.
1: But then I would argue that it's pointing out a severe inadequacy in what you had planned to do.
2: Well, obviously some a bug got through. Could be a whole slew of bugs got through. It could, maybe you use some of these techniques we're gonna talk about here, but things still get through. Good idea to go back and review your test cases and add anything that did get through your, mm-hmm. your tests right? You want to continuously keep improving them. But yes, it should not be your first quality.
0: (laughs) Your first line of
1: defense.
2: Yeah. Right, right. The customers really didn't sign up to be your testers.
0: In the the ad hoc sense, Steve, I mean, I I can see that uh, an organization who begins to respond to the market. I mean, you respond to your clients. You, you definitely have to make tests to trap things if someone finds something, right? Even though a bug fix might largely eliminate the, the urgency of having that test, but you still do it in a regression set, perhaps. You still have that test in there, but you know, As you begin throwing more carcasses on the cart, to use a Monty Python visual, <laughs> you will you you will begin to duplicate stuff, right? You'll have a whole bunch of stuff in there that never even got sorted, which really kind of leads to this notion of being more formal about it. You know, at some point in time, as you add more tests and add more tests and add more, it does dawn on someone that maybe there's a better way of doing this. So how do you get into this idea of adequate? How do you approach even thinking about it? What's enough testing versus not?
2: and i think that's that's a trap people get into is they just keep adding tests and it's easy right. to add lots and lots of tests that don't add any more value if you do just the basics of range analysis and your edge identify your edges what's your valid ranges and your invalid ranges You only need a few tests, it turns out. If you you use some techniques and design your tests, you can get by with like five or six tests and cover everything. Whereas it's easy to add dozens or hundreds of tests that all come back with the same results and really don't add anything, any new information or add any more quality. Costs of maintaining tests are real. You can have lots and lots of tests and you have to maintain them. If you change how the software is supposed to work, you're going to have to update those. Now, the good news is you will run into tests that don't work if you change your software if you're doing things right. But you do have to maintain tests. So you don't want thousands of extra tests. So part of this
1: involves looking at the set of tests that you have and asking the question, why are we testing that? Why does that test case exist? What does it tell me different than some other test case? Most organizations do take a very ad hoc, random, reactionary approach. But what we're trying to do is change that around to be a systematic approach. If we can start with a systematic description of the software to be tested, and if we can follow a systematic process that gives us a minimum number of test cases that give us the maximum coverage, as the term Brian used, then we get the most efficient, and most effective set of test cases. We have to do some amount of testing that will always be the case, but the point is are we, to the extent that we have to test are we efficient in how we're testing and are we effective in how we're testing and taking a systematic approach to coming up with testing gives it makes it much more efficient much more effective
2: fewer tests more coverage that's kind of the the goal and you know i mentioned like black box testing you know the, those ranges uh, checking the edges of valid ranges things like that there's also your adequacy your test criteria should be specified in terms of probably some black box, some functional testing, as well as some white box, some structural testing. I mean, if you want to be thorough, you're going to have to look inside the code and say, am I exercising all the code paths? Am I exercising the decisions? You do have some trade-offs to make. You, you can you can try to do exhaustive testing, but that's usually prohibitive. If your range is more than about 10 possible values, then it quickly gets out of hand.
1: Yeah, I use an example in my class of basically a half a page of code that if you are able to automate a million test cases a second in order to test One test cycle of this half a page of code ends up taking 83 orders of magnitude more than the age of the universe. And that's just to do one test cycle. And it's a half a page of code.
2: Yeah, if you start getting full range of integer as your value value, and you end up with like some nested loops, you can get billions of years to try to run your exhaustive tests. Which I think most people do not have in their budget for testing.
1: <laughs> right, it's certainly not in my budget.
0: <laughs> yeah, no kidding. The adequacy question has been around forever, right? Since people started writing code, and you know, we've gotten to the point where we're, where, where, you know, there, there's these classes of things where you've got unit testing and integration testing and system testing and acceptance testing, and we have as, as an industry started to kind of stratify where we put emphasis and whatnot. There, you know, different levels and tests that, that we have. This is a technical issue that's solvable. What is really the the driver here, right? It's not necessarily technical to 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 do these tests, right? It's really kind of a, as you said, Brian, a cost issue. It's really maybe even a business question.
2: There definitely are costs involved. There are trade-offs. If you're doing a casual game your quality bar can be a little bit different than if you're doing medical devices or avionic systems for commercial jetliner. People are going to put more money into testing certain kinds of applications. It is a trade-off you'll have to look at.
1: Jumping in here, my issue is is that people have always tried to look at the how much testing is enough question as if it were a technical question. And I'm firmly convinced that it's not a technical question. There at all. There's no technical answer to the question. It's entirely a business question. Essentially, there's an incremental cost of having a test case. If you want one more test case, it's going to cost you. But then there's the other side of this is that the test case has a value. How likely is it to reveal a, a, a defect? And what is the... If we didn't fix, find and fix that defect now, how much damage would it do later? And so there's, a, if you will, an expected value of the failure. And the value of the test is avoiding the expected value of the, f- the failure. And so the whole point here is that how much testing is enough. It really does come down to being a business question. If I can spend $10 on a test case and it avoids a million dollars of risk exposure out in the field, then clearly that's a wonderful idea. But on the other hand, if I'm spending $500 just to have the test, and it's avoiding $100 worth of risk exposure out in the field, it's like, that's a really silly idea. And so my point is that as long as the incremental value of another test case is significantly enough higher than the incremental cost of that test case, then it does, in fact, make business sense to have that test case. So it's entirely a business question. It's not a technical question at all.
2: Right. And I think the technical issue is in you know you have some time and money to try to improve the quality of your software now what what are the technical approaches you can use to make sure you get good value out of that testing effort and that's where i think the test right. design and the reviews and this you know the processes we can use to do that help push the quality up then then you kind of have to adjust your criteria based on, you know, what is the impact? What is the risk? What is the, you know, what's the impact if it fails? You have non-tangible things too. Company reputation, mm-hmm. marketing. There's things besides just, you know, are we going to lose somebody's file and cost them $100 of work? You know, they're not going to buy your software again if it does that too many times, right? <laughs> they we they may can not-
1: try
0: not to buy your software. Yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> we, we, we may mention certain cases in point. <laughs> offline.
0: No, no, no. Exactly.
1: Yeah. So to me it's sort of two dimensions if you will. There's sort of the immediate first order dimension of do I have a efficient and effective set of test cases based on some degree of coverage. I mean you mentioned structural coverage, statement coverage for example or decision coverage or condition decision coverage. These are all different degrees of coverage. Adequacy of test cases where essentially, as I move to a higher degree of coverage, I have to have more test cases to achieve that level of coverage. But the trade off is that in having that higher level of test cases, more test cases, there's a higher probability of exposing defects. And so then the question becomes, how many more test cases does it cost me to get that higher level of coverage? And what's the increase in the number of defects I find because I got that level of coverage. But I'm trying to get the effectiveness through my testing of achieving that level of coverage. That level of coverage is what gives me the effectiveness. All test suites that achieve the same level of coverage have the same effectiveness in the end. And the efficiency comes in from the point of view of achieving the level of coverage with the fewest reasonable test cases. Okay, so that's point one. The other dimension of this is the idea of risk-based testing. And again, this is the economic side of this. How likely is this particular chunk of code to be broken in the first place? And second, if it were broken, then how much damage would it do, given that it was broken? As you have higher risk exposure... That should drive a higher level of coverage. You're talking about a video game. Maybe there's a high probability that the code is broken, but the severity tends to be rather low. I mean, what's the worst thing that could happen? It erases your high score. Yeah. Okay. But then you mentioned uh, medical systems and avionics. I mean, I spent literally half of my career building systems that uh, if there were defects in the code, it could kill somebody. And I'm proud to say that in over 44 years that I haven't killed anybody yet.
0: (laughs) Well, I've seen, you know, I've seen examples of people throwing their controllers at the television and breaking a nice big 85 inch flat screen TV because they got frustrated with bad code in a Game, but that's a, probably less severe than death.
1: Yeah, a couple of thousand feels like dollars, death but- to
0: a twelve-year-old, perhaps. But not, <laughs> yeah, but not, not, not in the same way. So you talk about test coverage. You have this idea of of, of this process. To go, I think this is basic stuff. But I think you. you, you talk about functional coverage, right? There's certain kinds of tests as you might do. And Brian alluded to the edge cases and to sort of like finding these ways to kind of go through and say, okay, I dropped the book on the on the keyboard. What does that do? Randomizing. Um, <laughs> st- structural coverage, right? Digging deeper into, you know, these these are things that uh, from a white box perspective, in, in some respects, only the person that wrote that code knows where to probe on some of those things. Is that a, is that a right thing to say? Or would that be That'd be a leap.
2: That's the best person to catch some of these often is a person who wrote it. And that means it's, you're doing it very early. Minimize the amount of time from when the code was written to when the defect is discovered. Uh, that's why I'm a big fan of automated unit testing. The developer writes it and this kind of captures how it's supposed to work, like the requirements at a very low level for that unit. And you Have things you can run. It works great with, uh, you know, CICD, a build pipeline, build and test. You can keep regressing all the time uh, when you have those automated unit tests. And you, you can build those out and look at the coverage and make sure you're getting that good coverage of all the decisions, of all the conditions, all the code paths. And, you know, make sure you exercise all those and do it real early. TDD in the small, I think, is a good example as well. You very, uh, I walk people through it, and they look. Oh, that's what TDD can mean, because they think it's. A lot of people think TDD is write all your tests beforehand and then start writing code. I don't think is the right way to do it. You want to write a test, it fails. You write enough code to make it work, and you keep iterating, adding a test till it fails, making it work. And you keep generalizing, and then pretty soon you've got code that works, and it has the exception cases and the you know the possible errors caught right from the beginning instead of, I remember you used to have to think about adding that at the end. You go, oh, I got a test case that doesn't work. Now I got to change the code just so it can handle like a null string or an empty string. It's much better to think about these things right from the beginning and build it right in. A lot of times you do see the light bulb go on and that works for those tiny module level functions that operate on, on an input and an output. You've also got acceptance TDD, which works a little bit higher level. So this story isn't done until it meets these acceptance criteria and you've actually got tests for it. Then you don't have the problem of this, this story's done in my sprint, and we're in the next sprint, oh wait, there's a bunch of things that don't work. That software is not actually done. Done criteria, I've seen teams adjust their done criteria so that if you don't have good tests for it and doesn't pass all those tests, it's not done. You've got a lot more value in the stories you deliver. Instead of creating more debt to carry forward.
1: Yeah, and I would say that your definition of done should not only say that you're passing all your test cases as appropriate, how, but I would also add that the test cases achieve appropriate levels of coverage. Are we doing the edge case testing? Are we doing the domain coverage testing? Are we getting decision coverage? on our unit testing.
2: That criteria to say what is adequate testing is kind of needs to be written in terms of what kind of black box coverage testing and what kind of white box coverage testing do we say is enough. And if you do that for every piece, then you have what I call well-tested bricks that you're building things out of, which I think is a big advantage. Then you don't find all these (laughs) issues at integration time, or you certainly don't find as many issues at integration time.
0: (laughs) You still will, things still
2: break. Testing units does not mean that the units integrate together well. And so there will always be things you have to find in integration testing. We haven't really talked about them, but test doubles, those are a great tool let you enable you to do good uh, unit testing and mock out or stub out these other pieces that your unit needs to talk to.
0: So you're talking more as an example, that might be you're building software, firmware for hardware that you don't have access to yet. So you invent something that simulates that hardware until you actually get the real hardware in place. So you can do a lot more upfront rather than deferring those test cases until you actually have the hardware in your hands.
2: Yeah, could be another service. Anything external to that unit you're trying to test, you want to be able to isolate it. So you don't have to worry about, is it built yet? Does it work correctly? Do I have to try to diagnose... Is it bugs in my code or in the code that I'm dependent on? You can mock those or stub them out, and then you can test in isolation. You control it's like the old uh, Twilight Zone, right? You control the inputs, the horizontal and the vertical.
0: <laughs> wow. Now, now you guys are both dating
2: yourself because I don't know what you're talking about. Is that, the, I mean, that might be the outer limit. <laughs> oh, you need to be able to control all that stuff and observe your results so you, you know. When I do this, I should expect that exactly that. That's one of the things that's amazing to me is sometimes people have tests where they don't know what the expected result should be. And to me that's not a test. It didn't crash, therefore the test passed. You know, that what is that called, the <laughs> null, the null test?
0: Let's run down some some of, you know, in your guys experience working with different clients and so you, you certainly have amassed a, a collection of best practices that we would recommend that people do when you talk about doing this kind of stuff. Let's not you start ticking off some of those so we can kind of just get a feel for what, th- what should, 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 should a best performing team be doing to put together some kind of a adequacy program internally?
2: Well, I think one of the key things is to think about it early and upfront and, as we mentioned, review it with the business. There's, there's some things that the technical people are the best ones to come up with the criteria. But the overall, what does our quality bar need to be? What is our competition doing? Are we a casual game or an avionics company? You know, where they just need to set the bar and say, yeah, we can't have these kind of failures, so we need to have this excellent kind of coverage. Good testing program, test it, you know, mock and isolate everything and specify that. Have a good adequacy criteria set up for, for maybe different components or maybe the whole system. And do it early. Think about it. That's one of the first steps.
1: Yeah, and I'd say uh, I think it's important to understand what your options for testing are. Uh, when we're talking functional or black box testing, what does it mean to be getting requirements coverage? What does it mean to be getting input domain coverage? What does it mean to be getting what I would call boundary value coverage, what Brian was calling the the edge cases Right. And there's there's a relatively new technique that's shown up, I'd say, in the last 15 years, which in the testing realm is actually f- fairly recent, uh, is something called uh, combinatorial testing. When there are too many combinations of things that we can take structured approaches to how we come up with the com- combinations and not have to test all possible combinations, that on the functional testing side, on the structural testing side, I think it's amazing that sort of the default level of white box coverage is between 60 and 70% statement coverage. But what that completely ignores is the fact that there are other forms of structural coverage, decision coverage condition decision coverage, modified condition decision coverage, et cetera, that people didn't even know that you could test that way. And I'll take it even a step further, which is to say that statement coverage, decision coverage, that, that is a family of structural testing called control flow testing. And there's a whole other level of structural testing called data flow testing. And the fascinating thing is that when you understand what data flow testing is, all definitions coverage, all uses coverage, all DU paths coverage, it becomes really obvious that these forms of testing will reveal defects that the control flow testing is totally blind to. And so, What I'm trying to get at here is the idea of if you didn't even know that you could think about testing your software this way, how could you be effective at testing? This is the kind of thing that Brian can tell you about. I mean, clearly, we don't have the time to tell you about here, but there are different ways of thinking about how I could even test software in the first place that if you weren't aware of, you couldn't even think about your software this way.
2: Right. Many organizations, uh, when they first talked to us, are strictly in terms of statement coverage, which is the weakest form of uh, white box coverage. But it's it's easy to measure, right? A lot of the tools support it. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. sometimes people just set the goals on that and say, oh, we're going to get 100% statement coverage. And they go, okay, that's a, <laughs> Really? It's a hard, it's I hard see to mo- do and not as effective as you would hope. Well, uh,
1: what I have seen most often is somewhere between 60 and 70% statement coverage. So long as you executed 60 to 70% of the lines of code in your test case, which to me is totally ludicrous because that means between 30 and 40% of the lines of code in your code has never been executed by any test case at all. Right. So and that,
2: obviously, yeah. <laughs> I don't think that meets our definition of enough testing. Under pretty much any
1: circumstances.
2: Exactly. <laughs> start throw. When you phrase it that way and start say, throat. it's okay to not even exercise 30 to 40% of our code during testing. I don't think most people would sign off on that.
1: And yet I see that as the dominant approach.
0: Yeah. It's depressing to some extent. Brian, you mentioned, you know, start early you know, it's, it's, uh, work up front, um, planning in the development process. You know, that's, uh, testing is also part of the development process. It's not something done after the fact. What about things like test case reviews? I mean, you have code reviews for active code. Do you do, you do the same thing for test cases?
2: Literally the next thing I was going to mention. Hey, I'm a straight man. <laughs> there you go. Looking at test cases, getting them defined and getting them to where you can review them with like, the subject matter experts or your business owners is a great and underrated step. If you don't if you and the and the people who either will use the software or who will you know represent the users of the software, if you don't agree that these are the right things to test to make sure they work, you clearly need to iterate on that a little bit. A lot of people, I think it helps just to write them down. Literally having something you can review is a great step. We mentioned test all the time. Make it so you can run those tests. Part of the continuous integration, the build pipeline, so so the tests get run all the time. You do it so it builds, now move it up to where you make sure the tests pass every time. And uh, treat those, any test failures, treat them like a build failure. That's often the kind of a switch, make it clear, we care if any of the tests break, you can't just ignore them, you have to fix something. And obviously the bias should be on fixing the code, not the test. Sometimes the test needs to change, but I have seen examples where people want to change the test and they were wrong. How interesting. And the test was, in fact, pointing out the, the it was breaking correctly and they needed to fix the code, not the test. So be very cautious about, oh, I'll fix that by fixing the test. <laughs> <laughs> to me, uh, one of the key best practices is this
1: acceptance test-driven development where for a user story, we're getting the the product owner, the business subject matter experts, and the developers to agree on what test cases this code needs to pass before we go spend the time to write the code. And without going into a a huge, gory, detailed discussion of this, what's happening is that We think we're having a test case discussion, but in fact, we're not actually having a discussion of test cases. We're having a discussion about the requirements. We're just having that requirements discussion using test case language because test case language is unambiguous. So if we were to give this function in the software this input, what would we expect the answer that the code gave us as output? It phrased as a test case, but you can think of it as equally being a requirement when given input that looks like this, developer's code shall produce output that looks like that.
2: Right. And that's a great example of how the tests can often capture the very detailed requirements that were more detailed than what came in from the requirements process. The the tests become an executable list of the requirements. And that's why they're so great for regression testing. Mm -hmm. I think you're exactly right. Uh,
1: When I go talk to uh, in the field organizations, I ask them, are you doing, quote, TDD? Are you doing test driven development? And when the answer is yes, I find that most often what they're doing is the unit test driven development. They're doing method level unit testing, which is better than nothing. But my issue here is, is that for the story, the developer is building the code to their interpretation of the story. Whereas if you're doing the acceptance test-driven development, then the product owner has to agree that these are the test cases that demonstrate that you implemented this user story the way I intended the user story to be implemented.
2: Right, and those can be right in the acceptance criteria of the story.
1: Right, and so where TDD is actually defined at two levels, the acceptance level and the unit level. I see most organizations doing it, if they're doing it at all, they're doing it at the unit level, not the acceptance level. But if you're going to do it at one level and not the other, it's far more effective to do it at the acceptance level and not at the unit test level, because at least we know the code is doing what the product owner wants it to do. We're building code to the product owner's interpretation of the story and not the developer's interpretation of the story.
2: Right. And those are really just kind of two different levels, a little bit lower level and then kind of the functional level for the, for the story, right. For ATDD. Well,
1: so the unit testing is against the methods on the classes. And then the acceptance, the ATDD part is against the story itself, the story as a whole, as a, uh, I want, uh, so that, uh, okay, well, what, end-to-end test cases, we put this into the code in the front end, and we expect to see that out at the back end. But in order to implement, there might be 17 different methods on different classes. And the unit testing, I would have 17 unit test frameworks around those 17 methods, but there's one end-to-end for that story. So the ATDD is up at the higher level story end-to-end, Whereas the unit testing, UTDD is on each method of each class that I'm, that's involved in getting me the answer I need end-to-end. End.
2: And I think it just helps, you know, anything that puts a little bit more detail where you can objectively agree if the story is complete or not, I think mm-hmm. that's probably a win. Yeah, especially
1: when we can get that agreement about those before we waste time writing code that turns out to be to a wrong interpretation.
2: So it's, again, it's like the test case review. Agree on it yeah, up front yeah. and then build to it. It's a review of the test cases, at least with the product
1: owner, and I was just working with a particular organization earlier this morning where uh, they're adopting an ATDD approach, and one of the recommendations is to not only have, if you will, the implicit review of the test cases with the product owner, but actually explicit review of the test cases with other developers who were working on different stories, because it's important, as we mentioned earlier, that that set of test cases achieve some level of coverage. And so how do we know that we're achieving the level of coverage? Well, why don't we have another developer who wasn't involved in that story implementation evaluate that that set of ADD test cases for that story for that kind of coverage adequacy. And it spreads the knowledge around about the testing techniques and coverage and make sure that if we forgot a boundary that's included, et cetera. So uh, it's a review that involves other developers, not necessarily the business people, the subject matter experts.
2: I think other developers is is a key too, because you know who else is going to help with those white box code reviews and verify the the code coverage down at that level, right? It's not gonna be the product owner. Exactly. So speaking of down at the code level, I think another another best practice is design for testability, dependency injection, keeping code simple, keeping things single responsibility, just you know, some basics of that, like that. A lot of times I see people scan their code base and come back and say, oh, I've got a CCM of 132, is that bad? <laughs> the answer is yes, yes, it is bad. And it's probably a bug farm, right? Yes, yes, it is. Well, yes, because what is it? Uh, 40% of bugs occur in 10% of the code that have a high code complexity metric?
1: It's about 70% of defects occur in about 20% of the code as, def- as you identify the code with the, the cyclomatic complexity. Yeah.
2: encourage some organizations just to scan their code and start treating super high complexity As a kind of technical debt. Yeah. Take a look at that one, simplify it, break it out into multiple modules that are simpler, easier to test. Things, you know, another one that's like a heat seeking missile is where are all your defects occurring? Where do you end up having to make a lot of code fixes and make a lot of changes? (laughs) Those are things you should just target for refactoring right it's telling you something is wrong
0: that's a classic engineering resource thing right i mean it, you, you play, apply the resources where the pain is right and if you if you're if you look at if you look at your de- tra- defect tracking system and you're seeing just an enormous amount of stuff pile up at somebody's doorstep that should tell you something about that chunk of code
1: well that's kind of the point here is that the defects are not uniformly distributed in the code base they're not random They definitely cluster, and they absolutely cluster around complexity. There are two ways of looking at this. If you design for testability, then you end up with clean code. But on the other hand, if you build clean code, it ends up being testable. So what's interesting about this is that it kind of doesn't matter which perspective you approach it from. Let me just build clean code. Therefore, it will be easy to test. Or let me just build code that will be testable. Well, guess what? You get clean code. So it's two different approaches. Front door, back door will still get you into the house.
2: And sometimes it's more of a legacy code issue. They're not building it from scratch. So that's why, you know, scan the code base and find the hotspots. Your your bug reporting tool may be pointing you to the hotspots already. But whenever you touch things, refactor them, make them better more testable, cleaner.
0: Yeah, legacy code is, a. we could spend a whole nother podcast on legacy code, I think, because I think that's that's an area that scares the hell out of most clients is in particular, when you have maybe a a, a case where someone wrote code that is no longer with the organization, it's a key part of the executable. And yet every engineer that has inherited that thing uh, he has found out that, you know, every time I touch that thing, something breaks. I'm not touching it. You touch it. Somebody else take this code. I'm not going to look at this stuff. So the the leg the the, the the pejorative. Yeah, for sure. The pejorative on legacy code is you have those issues. You just can't get away from it. someone has to take that take that responsibility on. And I, I you know, I've had. Countless discussions with the collective constructs mindset about this idea of reusability where people say, I'm not going to touch that code. I'm going to rewrite it from scratch because it's easier for me to support in the future. And I think you've beaten me to death over 15 years to the point that I understand that the maintenance costs associated with somebody trying to understand what somebody else did in a really complex piece of software is probably too high. It probably is better to kind of rewrite it if you can. And that's, to your point, Brian, And trying to retire some of the stuff from a technical debt perspective. Even if the code is working, from a long-term support perspective, it does make the most sense to have somebody who's actually physically going to be there who has innate knowledge of that code base to, to really be having their hands in it.
2: Well, and I think it's very telling. People are afraid to touch it. Why are they afraid to touch it? Because they're not sure if they're going to break it. Often, because it has no unit tests. So that that's kind of one of the techniques I talk about is how do you approach how do you take on a big pile of legacy code in such a way that you can safely refactor it it's kind of a chicken and egg but i think you you do need to add some unit testing to at least make sure you're you're safe as you refactor things and then you can start building the refactored code in that better, cleaner way from the start. But I think you have to put some... There's a whole book. Michael Feathers has a good book on working with legacy code that I recommend. And a lot of it is, how do you get enough confidence to be able to refactor things to make it better? And everybody has this problem. Yeah. Yeah, Unless they're they're a brand new startup, they have legacy code.
1: Well, as somebody once said years ago, we are building today the legacy systems of tomorrow.
2: (laughs) And I, I heard a good definition of legacy code is anything without good testing.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's, a way, that's a way to put it. So, so we, I think we've kind of stepped into this a little bit, but like, let's use the counterexamples here. What, what are some things that can go wrong when people go down this path and start putting some kind of adequacy system or some, some, some presence type of, type of testing in place, right? What, what are some of the signs of not having these things go correctly? There's a lot of them. Uh, we've seen them all, and that's why we're still in business.
2: I think a lot of what I see is people kind of start on it or they start on one piece and and then they kind of stop with just that piece. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, we mentioned, if you do all unit testing, you're going to have problems at integration and system level issues because you're not testing that. So I think that's the biggest thing is you can't just adopt one piece and stop. And there's the whole, I'm not aware of all these techniques, so they're dead to me. I, you know, I don't know how to, use them so my tests never include them. So I think that's one of the things you can do too is just learn about more techniques and you can find the ones that are appropriate for your environment, for your software, for your, you know, maybe organizational maturity level. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you're starting from scratch.
1: I think some level of measurement, instead of just acting, some level of measurement can be really uh, revealing in the sense of how many defects are we exposing through developer testing and how many defects are being reported in the field where my test effectiveness is the number of defects that have been found by the developers divided by the sum of defects found by developers plus found in field. Where are a majority of the defects being found? And if you find that 80% of your defects are being found in the field and not in testing, I think that tells you pretty obviously that you're not very effective in the testing that you're doing. You've to rethink how you're going about even doing the testing.
2: And I think me- there's lots of different measurements that you can use. I mean, we talked about scanning your code base for an identifying complexity hotspots. Mm-hmm. There's just like, where do you have tests and where do you not? that can be a good place to target. If you have zero tests in an area, you want to maybe at least cover some some basic sanity type tests. And I I, I always encourage people to require at least one unit test, because that's the expensive one. Once you get that one working, it's pretty easy to add additional tests. Start getting one unit test in there, and then you can easily add some more. Whenever anybody touches anything, they should add tests for what they had to fix or what the new code is that they added or what they changed. So that's kind of a good way to target that, that legacy problem of, you know, a bunch of code with no tests. But measurements are great. If you start looking for even statement coverage, tells you things are not tested at all or things are tested somewhat.
1: Provided they're the right measures. Yeah. You, you do have to be careful about what you are measuring. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what gets measured and what gets rewarded
0: is what gets done. I'm going to code me a minivan. That's right. <laughs> Precisely, Wally. What, what's the uh tell talk about automation for a second here cuz it's I think that's something that you don't like to be I, I think engineers te- tend to not want to keep their hands in 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 test code all the time. It'd be nice to like write a bunch of stuff and then and then have something at a at a certain cadence run. To run and test these things and do that kind of stuff. And I mean, what's what are some of the risks for for in automation that you, you guys have seen?
2: Well, I think one of the big ones is trying to depend entirely on automated testing. I think that is a that's a fallacy. Automated testing usually it runs a little bit behind where the software is. It also is only good at testing the tests that it knows how to test. So I think you don't want to forget about things like exploratory testing. Uh, you may want to have some humans look at it. Maybe they're in your internal betas. Maybe you turn on an A-B testing and 5% of your users, if you're a big scale web service, get the new version and you get some feedback from that. You want explore exploration and figure out where to add the next automated tests. If you just depend entirely on automated tests, there's only so far you can go, I think.
0: The th- same thing could be said on unit testing. Either extreme is not a good idea.
1: What I see a big failure mode is that people invest a huge amount in automating the testing. But as they say, a fool with the tool is still a fool because they've got essentially an ineffective set of test cases got automated. And so if you're not automating the right test cases, you have 72 test cases that are all essentially testing the same thing. And four key elements of the code are not tested by any of the test cases well, wonderful you you th- seem to get confidence out of these 72 test cases, but in fact, you should not have confidence because you're not getting any degree of
2: coverage. Designing those tests is is more important than automating them at least right. at, at that stage.
1: You you have to have an efficient and effective set of test cases before automation is even an issue.
2: And combined with some manual testing. Humans are very good at, you know, finding things that are wrong, uh, exploring Trying my, things out. my
0: wife tells me that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> you have now developers that could potentially be all over the world. They're, they're not all co-located. There's not a tribal knowledge sharing that happens in environments. So, you know, as you d- adapt these kinds of practices out into the wild, you you hit this these issues of like distributed teams, right? Now how do you work across sites to make sure that there's Right amount of testing. What what are some things that you guys have seen in the wild that that maybe are good examples of good practices, and then some things that have just been just awful.
2: The good news is, I think a lot of techniques like uh, CI/CD and the automated build test pipeline, uh, you know, basics like central source control, you know, help with a lot of these globally distributed teams. Everybody checks into the same place. The build gets built and tested, so your automated tests work. The harder things are probably where humans need to talk to each other. You know, the test case reviews, the maybe the code reviews. There are some nice systems to let you do asynchronous code reviews with, like, pull requests in GitHub. That can help with that. But some of those things are hard to replace. You know, the whiteboard session, the review where you walk through a document and look at examples and brainstorm right then. Those are hard to do out of real time. So I think that will always be the challenge. Is you you do need to be creative about how to get some of that interaction with a time overlap. But a lot of the central processes—checking out code, checking in code, making sure the build doesn't break, making sure all the tests work—that stuff should work as just as well for a geographically distributed team as for one that's all in the same bullpen. Okay.
1: So one of the things that I've been working on with one of our larger customers, uh, multinational, thousands of developers spread all around the world, is that a lot of organizations will have a coding standard defining how you write code, but what they're putting in place is actually a testing standard that's risk-based in the sense of, you ask the question, if this code were to be broken, how much damage could it do? Uh, financially you know wh- what is the loss that would occur if this code were to fail they've got levels look if it's if it's going to cost $10,000 or less worth of damage then we'll test it at this level if it's going to cost between 10,000 and 100,000 that level between 100,000 and a $1 million so they've basically worked it out to a risk exposure financial risk exposure and then they say At this level of financial exposure, you are required in your testing to get this level of functional coverage on the ATDD test cases and that level of structural coverage and functional coverage, it turns out as well, on your unit testing. And essentially, that becomes a development standard in the organization. So as part of their developing software they do a, a business risk assessment that then puts them into this standard and the standard basically says <laughs> this is how much testing you got to do before you're ready to ship out to a customer if the code is wrong it has the potential to uh, to kill people it just becomes a legislated part of the standard to how they do development it's published as a as a test standard
2: and how is that different for a for a geographically distributed team
1: well, if we're all in the same area, then we can do this sort of by word of mouth, by uh tribal. Yeah, tribal knowledge kind of thing. But if we're thousands of developers spread all around the, the world, then how do you communicate consistently other than by making it a standard and having it apply uniform around the world?
2: Kind of formalizing standards more so that everybody's looking at the same the same rule book.
1: I don't care if you're a developer. Here in the States, I don't care if you're a developer in India. I don't care if you're in the Netherlands. I don't care where you are. Your testing requirements are laid out because you are building software in this company. The testing requirements are laid out in the corporate testing standard. So now things are going to get done uh, consistently.
0: Is this an adjunct to a coding standard? Or, uh, it, it, yeah. Is, yeah. Okay.
1: Exactly. Yeah, uh, so our coding standard tells us what we need to do in code, and the testing standard says what we need to do in testing.
0: Who polices something like that? Just out of curiosity, what well, has it organizationally? I, I mean, I I'm curious about that about stuff like that because it is, you know, in the sense of like coding standard, does everybody look at their coding standards against the code they write? Not all the time, right? So, how about t- testing seems to be when you when you tie it to financial, maybe there's more incentive for people to 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 do it. I don't
1: know. Part of this involves, as Brian brought up, the idea of reviewing. You know, if somebody is expected to do something, how do we validate that they actually did it? And one of the best ways is to do a review. And to the extent that you're doing reviews inside of the team, that's great. But this particular organization, they do health checks. Where an external organization comes in and actually audits you, audits your project against compliance to the standard. The standard says you have to be testing at this level. Now, demonstrate to us in this audit that you are, in fact, getting this level of coverage out of your test cases.
2: And I've seen issues like that where just one branch office does things a little bit differently than another office without it being even a you know, a place with a thousand sites. So Mm -hmm. I think this problem exists even at a smaller scale. Uh, And it is good to think about how do you get everybody on the same page following the same process and review. Frequently ongoing review is usually the best. You know, I think that's a pretty extreme example to have an actual independent audit come in on a large scale that might make sense.
0: No, I I think it definitely does. We, I think we've kind of whacked the pinata pretty good here. I think there's I think there's definitely lots of little candies that people who are listening to this thing have picked up. So in the spirit of shameless self-promotion here, Brian, you have open enrollment for a developer testing, developer-driven testing, developer testing for software engineers class coming up.
2: That's right. Starting on September 28th, 2022, you can send one to, what do we say, one to 10 people can sign sure. up and come to. Sure. It's a public class. People from different companies sign up, show up and we do it virtually, and we go through four sessions of going through the core skills, talk about these different coverage techniques and their pros and cons and strengths and weaknesses. And then we it includes some Q&A type sessions, and then a couple follow-on sessions where you can come back and ask questions about how the process is going, what kind of things you ran into when you tried to actually apply this. So a little bit more than just a standard class and you're gone. So that, that's what we try to do here at Constructs is a little bit of follow-up and help you when you're actually, when the rubber hits the road, when you try to apply this.
0: Yeah. So through the learning program, you, get, you have opportunities to bring in your own examples of, of things that you've struggled with and stump the band, so to speak. Let's see if Brian can get this one right. So a lot of the stuff we talked about today, you're going to give some good examples in, in these sessions and hopefully expand people's capabilities there. I think we're going to leave it at that. I'll let each of you have one parting shot. Steve, go ahead and say anything you want to say to kind of wrap up here.
1: Uh, I'm not sure I could add anything pithy to this.
0: Oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. So Brian, well, how about you? Anything you want to add here at the end? Just, uh, just let people know that it's not as a spare moment, there's hope.
2: If you feel like you're alone and you're not the only one who hasn't mastered this, you're wrong. Every organization has room for improvement. I enjoy coming in and trying to help people sometimes apply things they're stuck on. Sometimes, again, just learn what's out there that you can apply in your environment. And a lot of times it's things that are a little bit unique. Talking to companies that build firmware versus web services. You know, there are different concerns. I've worked with companies that do both. It is interesting to see hear what people are doing out there and how we can apply these kind of things to all these different environments. and
0: Right. And I I think that's what's so helpful with you guys is you've been out there talking to so many different places. And its I wouldn't say it's completely rare that you'll find something that you haven't run across before, but you've seen an awful lot of stuff out there. A lot of times we we get clients that kind of ask us the question of, how do other people doing this? What are other people doing here?
1: Actually, to me, I think it's worth saying that uh, I do get pleasantly surprised sometimes. There was uh, one particular medical systems company that I was working at with uh, at the tail end of May, where w- we were doing a whole class on testing, and the topic of MCDC coverage came up, which is Usually, it's like, uh, never even heard of it. I haven't even heard of decision coverage, let alone modified condition decision coverage. And their response is, yeah, we do that all the time. And it's like, what, really? (laughs) Somebody really does this? (laughs) Well, yes, we're a medical system. And if it breaks, uh, we can kill the, the person that we're working with here. And we've decided that that's not really a good idea. And MCDC coverage is a good way of helping us avoid that. So it's interesting to be able to see that there are people who have actually gotten the message, and that's encouraging.
0: That's very cool. All right, gentlemen, it's been a good session. I really appreciate you both of your time. Steve, thanks. Brian, thanks. There are some things that we probably kicked around here that might be fodder for another podcast in the future. So I, I, I think we could probably reconnect and do some more. And there you go. That's the session. I bet many listeners found a lot of things that ring true in that conversation. I love how we got into some good back and forth between Steve and Brian, and and I think the economic decision-making was really interesting, personally. Lots of useful takeaways that hopefully tell you that your own testing practices are on the okay side. If not, then maybe pinging Brian or Steve on specific questions might be a good idea. And don't forget, as Brian mentioned at the close of the conversation, he has an open enrollment cohort forming for his developer-driven testing for the end of October 2022. Be sure to be on the Constructs mailing list for the details of that offering and for other news from Constructs in general. If you enjoyed this style of podcast, feel free to give us a positive rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or whatever you normally find us. If you have comments or you'd like to talk to one of our practitioners, or you have ideas for a future podcast, reach out via email using comments at constructs.com. Again, that's comments at constructs.com. We would love to hear from you. Be sure to tune in again for another episode of Inspect and Adapt, the Constructs podcast. Until then, this has been Mark Griffin as your host and Earl Beattie as audio hack and producer. Talk to you again soon, everybody, and have a great next sprint.